Episode number 65. The state shall regard the lives of its citizens as its most precious and sacred asset. Welcome to the Torah Podcast. Lessons from authentic Judaism. Get the tools and inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyama Mitterhoff with this week's Torah Podcast. This week's Torah portion is both Matos for Maseh, and the subject is on how to create the ideal society, the human divine paradigm. We could have a powerful parable about the drunk son, a great story about Abshach, and peace in your home, more on dialogue. And now, the Torah portion of the week, with novel ideas from the classic commentaries. Towards the beginning of Parshish Maseh, the Torah says like this, Hashem spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, at Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan to go into the land of Canaan, the Jews are about to cross the Jordan River and go into Eretz Israel, you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, and you shall destroy all their temples, all their molten images shall you destroy, and their high places you shall demolish. You shall rid the land, and you shall settle on it. For to you... Have I given the land to possess it? And then it continues a little bit later. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, those whom you leave shall be as pins in your eyes and as thorn hedges in your sides. And they will harass you upon the land that you dwell. And it shall be that what I have meant to do to them, I will do to you. So Rashi explains that the Jews actually passed over the Jordan River on dry land. Hashem made it dry. But it's on the condition that you do what I say, which is to get rid of all these idol worshippers. And if not, the water will come back and wash you away. So the Ramban explains that this is a mitzvah, it's a positive commandment to come to the land of Israel and settle it. And if it should enter their minds to go to Shinor of Assyria, they'd be over the violation of the commandment of God. They have to go specifically to Israel. And it's forbidden to leave it. And he brings the Gemara Baba Basra that says that if a husband wants to go to Eretz Surah and the wife doesn't want to come with him, she's considered a rebellious wife. And likewise, the husband, if the woman wants to go to Eretz Surah and the husband doesn't want to come, he's considered rebellious also. Because this verse is a positive commandment. And it reiterates this mitzvah in many places. For it says in Devarim, come and possess the land. It's a mitzvah to come to Eretz Yisrael, to live in Eretz Yisrael, to conquer Eretz Yisrael, and to settle in Eretz Yisrael. So the verse a little bit later on says, Do not defile the land in which you dwell, in whose midst I reside. For I am Hashem who resides in the B'nai Yisrael. And Revolbi brings this forno who explains on the Pasuk in Vayikra that says, the land shall not be sold forever because the land belongs to me. And the Sforno explains, even though it says in Tehillim, the heavens are the heavens for Hashem and the land he gave to mankind, Eretz Yisrael, it still belongs to God. He didn't give it to man. And what's the Nafkamina? He brings the Bach who explains that someone who lives in Israel, it's like he's living with the Shekhinah. God is here. And when he eats the fruits of Eretz Yisrael, he's eating holy fruits. And we transform our physical bodies into a abode for the Shekhinah. So we see that Eretz Yisrael is a very special place. And it's a commandment for us to come and settle the land and live here. 
But the first commandment we get when we got here was to drive out before you the inhabitants of the land and destroy their symbols and their images. And if not, what happens? These people will be as hedges in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they will oppress you. So what does the Ramban explain? They will gouge your eyes. They will lead you astray so you will not see or understand spiritual truths. In other words, spiritually, you'll be spiritually blind. And you'll start to worship their gods. And what does it mean thorns in your sides? They will afflict you with pain. They will steal from you and plunder against you. They will actually wage war against you and bring you under siege in your own country. That's exactly what's happening today. So the Orachayim explains that you have to get rid of everybody. It says to drive them all out, even those that are not part of the seven nations. And if you don't have the power to kill them, you should at least send them out of the land to make sure they're not around. But if you decide to let some of them stay, in order that you should have workers and people to help you, so they're going to be like thorns in your eyes and pricks in your side. And they're going to harass you. That's exactly what happened after the Six-Day War. We decided to keep all the Arabs in the country to help us build the country. And look what's happening now. And what does it mean they'll harass you in the land? They'll harass you in, even in the parts that you conquered. If they're in a different part, even in those parts, you'll still be harassed. You won't have peace. So the first mitzvah that we had when we came to Eretz Yisrael is to get rid of the negative influences. Which negative influence? Between man and God. And Rav Hirsch explains it. He says like this. If you will allow the pagan inhabitants to remain in the land, they will become like a hedge around their pagan practices. What do you mean a hedge? The nature of these practices will be concealed from you, from your perception and insight. And you won't find any fault in them. And what happens? Tolerance towards the pagan inhabitants will beget tolerance toward paganism. You'll start to become friends with them. You'll get used to these people. you say, these people are okay. What's the problem? And really inside their houses are doing idol worship. Worshipping multiple gods, different forces. And what will happen? You will cease to belong to God alone. And therefore you will be deprived of your right to exist in the land. And you won't be worthy of God's protection. And what will happen? When God removes his protection, those who you've been so tolerant towards, they will become your enemies. The same people that you accepted, they'll come against you. And he says, the whole book of Shoftim is nothing but a history of what befell the Jewish people by dis disregarding this warning. By allowing the nations and their philosophies to exist in Israel, it brings our destruction. Ah, we should be liberal. We should be politically correct. Let's let everybody in. Let's let everybody convert. Bring them in easily. No, we need purity. We need holiness. We need to make sure that the prevalent philosophy is that Hashem is one. There's only one way, the Torah. And all these other outside forces have to be getting rid of. These outside ideas. We have to destroy them. If not, they're going to destroy us. So that was the first mitzvah between us and God. And it took us 40 years of traveling in the desert to purify ourselves just to get to this point. So we have to make sure we don't fall at this point. The Malum explains, when it says in Devarim, you saw that Hashem did before your eyes in the land of Mitzrayim, yet Hashem did not give you a heart to know until this very day, until you traveled for 40 years. 
And he brings a parable like this. If you want to bring a person from a warm country and bring him to a cold country, you can't do it overnight. You have to do it little by little or else he's going to die. And this is why the Jewish people had to go through the desert for 40 years to purify them from the paganism of Mitzrayim. So when we come into the land, we have to make sure everything's pure. You see how important it is for us to guard ourselves against these false ideas. And this is the fight of a Jew as he's placed among the nations to stay devoted to the Torah and the right way of looking at things. And interestingly enough, what's the next mitzvah right after we divide the land? The mitzvah is to make Iri Miklat. These are the cities of the Levim where if a person was to kill another person inadvertently, by mistake, by accident, he could run there to save his life so that the family of the one that he killed do not kill him. This is a way to protect him, to protect life. And the verse says like this, Among the cities that you shall give to the Levim, there shall be first six cities of reception, which you shall designate that a manslaughter shall flee there. And then afterwards, there's going to be another 42 cities. In total, there's 48 Irimiklat, cities all throughout the country where someone can run if he's in a situation like that. So Rabbeinu Bachi explains, what is this mitzvah? Such a person is not guilty of the death penalty. He didn't intend to kill his victim. This law demonstrates that the heart of the person and the prime driving force of man's activity, where there's no coordination between the body and the mind, the guilty party only has to be exiled. And he brings the Pasuk from Tehillim and says, O Lord, be mindful of your compassion and your faithfulness as a time of old. What was a time of old? Even though the animal Rishon brought death into the world, you didn't kill him. So if God is compassionate towards involuntary murderers, showing them a path to escape their predicament, how much more so compassion he must have on genuinely righteous people. So this is a mitzvah bein Adam Adam. It's our mitzvah when we settle the land, when we create a country. We have to have mercy upon people in order to save them from being killed. So Revolbi explains, the Pusik says, that Moses set aside three cities on the bank of the Jordan towards the rising sun. And what does Gemara Mako say there? Cause the sun to shine for the murderers. This is the last mitzvah that Moshe Rabbeinu did. Causing the sun to shine for dejected people. Caring for the downtrodden. And Revobi wants to add, Chazal teaches us, one that shows the white of his teeth, his smile to a friend, is more, does more for him than giving him milk to drink. When you smile on somebody, and you're there to help the person, and you have Rachmanis on them, you truly light up their life. This is the second mitzvah we need in order to be able to settle the land of Israel. To help people. To care about people, to care about murderers that they shouldn't die. Rev. Hirsch says like this, The land is given over to all God's people only on the condition that they respect the sanctity of every human life, which is sacred to the Torah. Innocent blood that is spilled and disregarded loosens a thread in the tie that connects the land with the nation, and both the land and the nation with God. Immediately upon the conquest of the land, when the land is divided, there should be created that legal institution, the Iri Miklat. That's the first thing we should do after we got rid of all the idol worship. So Rav Hirsch continues and he says on this verse, Do not turn the land to which you are into a hypocrite. For the blood turns the land to a hypocrite. There could be no atonement for the land for the blood that is spilled in it except for the blood of the one who spilled it. 
This is the continuation of the mitzvah of guarding life. You should not take ransom for the life of a murderer who has incurred the death penalty. You can't let him get away with it. That's someone who deliberately killed. Now, what does it mean the land is a hypocrite? The land will disappoint the expectations that you would otherwise justify placing on it. In other words, it's not going to give forth its blessing. It's going to look hypocritical. Such a society breaks the terms under which it may possess the land. And when someone kills somebody, God forbid, since he has spilled the blood of his fellow man, he has forfeited his own right to exist. Man is not an animal. We have to care about other human beings. This is the next mitzvah of coming into Eretz Yisrael, of being here, of creating society, of creating a country, caring about people. Rav Hirsch continues, he says, When Noah was allowed to walk on the land again, Hashem gave him domain over the world of plants and animals, thereby proclaiming, Man who is created in the image of God is endowed with a higher dignity, and the recognition of this higher dignity is on the basic condition for the gift of the earth for man's domain of the world, over the world. God only gave us the world if we continue as a Selim Elohim, if we continue in the image of God, a godly man. But if there's indifference on part of the community towards the shedding of innocent blood, it is a patent denial of man's divine nature. The human society in which God is present must reflect the dignity of the human man and must give expression to the fact that man was created in the image of God. The proper society should be like this, he says. The state shall regard the lives of its citizens as its most precious and sacred asset. And this is the second half of creating a society. Caring about people. If we let bloodshed happen, it means we don't care about anybody. What's the difference? This guy died, that guy died. Like you have in America, this young girl, Kate Steinle. She was killed and nobody cares. Or half the country doesn't care. That's the end of society. If you have people killing each other rampantly, like in Syria, so God will take the land away from us. But you see from this, you need two things for society to exist. First, you have to have Ben Adam Lamakom. You have to get rid of all the idol worship and have your philosophy straight. And then you have Ben Adam Adam between man and man. The regard for human life, human dignity, that man is created in the image of God. And if you don't have both those things, you can't have a society, a normal society, a healthy society, a society that's blessed. And there's a beautiful proof for this Alpi Kabbalah that says like this, the six Iri Miklat are like the six first words of the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elakeinu, Hashem Echad. Six words. Those are the first six Iri Miklat. And the next 42 Iri Miklat is like the first paragraph of Shema. Shema is something we say twice a day that we accept upon ourselves. O Malchu Shemaim. To dedicate ourselves to God. And the whole first paragraph is about between man and God. Hear, O Israel, Hashem is your God. Hashem is the only one. You shall love Hashem your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and all of your resources. And these commandments that I command you today should be on your heart. And you should teach them to your children. And speak of them when you sit in your home and while you walk. On the way and when you lie down, when you arise, you should bind them as a sign upon your arm, to fill them, and between your eyes. And you should write them upon your doorposts, mezuzot. 
and in the houses upon your gates. Shema is the mitzvah to accept upon ourselves our relationship to God. But according to this Chazal, we see that within that is Ben Adam the Chavero, the 48-year-old Miklat. This is another beautiful example of the greatness of the Torah, of the balance of the Torah, of how to create a society, and how to create a world which cares both about God and about man. Here is a powerful parable. The Magna Medua brings a Pasuk like this. Hashem spoke to Moses, Take revenge for the Bnei Yisrael against the Midianites. Afterwards, you should be gathered unto your people. The Midrash Rabbi says that Moshe wanted to see the revenge against Midian. Like it says to him, The righteous man will rejoice because he saw revenge. So he brings a parable. A wealthy man had an only son. He was a very sweet boy, but he had a problem. He couldn't stop drinking. So one time a doctor came to town. And the boy's father said, please, heal my son. So he said, I can do it. I can make your son hate to drink. It will be repulsive to him. So he treated the boy. And he says the son now despises alcohol. So the father saw, really, the truth was, he stopped drinking. But the father wanted to be sure. So what did he do? He sent his son to go buy some wine for him. So he went to the wine store and asked for a keg of wine. So the salesman said, fine, I'm going to go downstairs to get your keg. In the meantime, there was these empty jugs on the counter. The boy smelled the wine. It was so repulsive to him that he took a stick and broke all the jugs. When the wine seller came upstairs, he says, what do you do? He went up to the father. He said, your son broke all these wine caskets. He says, don't worry. I'll pay you for them. And the father was thrilled. Why? Because now I know that my son's hate for wine is deeply ingrained in him. So the same thing with Moshe Rabbeinu. He wanted to see that really that Yisrael was going to fight against the Midianites. He wanted to know if they still harbored inside their hearts desire for them, to be like them. If they hardly fight, so that means they weren't really healed. But since he saw that they fought with a fury and they hate them, so then Moshe was happy, like the verse says, the righteous man will rejoice because he saw revenge. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. The Kliyakar says in the verse, You shall arrange cities for yourself, cities of refuge, they shall be for you. So he compares it with the Perkyavas that says, Exile yourself to a place of Torah. Just like if an inadvertent murderer runs to one of these cities, he'll be able to live. So too, if you exile yourself to a place of Torah, you'll also come to life. Like it says, he shall live by them. And similarly, just like you shouldn't leave a city of refuge, because if the person leaves the city of refuge, then the brother or the father could kill him. So too, you shouldn't leave the study hall, the house of Torah. So we know that Rev Shach was separated from his family at a very young age to go to yeshiva just before World War I. But what happened? World War I broke out. And he was actually separated by a country border. They made new borders. He couldn't actually go back to see his mother and his sister. And his father passed away and he never saw him again. So what happened? There was the mother and the sister living in this town. And a neighbor also had a boy in the yeshiva where Rev Shach was. So they made a plan. They're going to send a letter to Rev Shach and this other boy, his friend. And they're going to meet at the border fence. So they sent the letter. 
and they're supposed to meet him this one day. They're waiting there, and they see that only the son of the friend comes, and Rav Shach didn't show up. Rav Shach's sister was a baby when Rav Shach left, and she never even met him. So here they're waiting there, Rav Shach doesn't show up to see his mother, who's a widow, and his sister, who he never saw before, never met before. So the boy brought with him a letter from Rav Shach, and it said like this. He apologized to his mother, and he said she was sure that his mother would understand, because she told him before the war broke out. The safest place to be is in the base of Midrash, in the house of Torah. So he wrote, I was afraid to come, because after seeing you, just after Abba died, and seeing my sister, I was afraid my emotions would get the better of me, and I wouldn't be able to learn after that. So I decided not to come, and he was sure his mother would agree with the decision. This is an unbelievable story, and it's even hard for us to understand. But in the end, let's not forget, Rav Shach became the greatest one of the generation. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. So Rav Simcha Cohen explains, a woman who feels that her husband doesn't speak to her enough, she has to examine herself. Maybe she's doing something that's preventing him from talking to her. Does she encourage him for him to share his feelings? Or does she unconsciously throw up obstacles, stopping him from talking? Maybe she comments in the middle or asks questions. And it stops the flow of the conversation. And it's hard for him to complete a thought. Or she says to him, oh, that's stupid. Or I would have done it differently. So in the end, the husband just shuts up. He doesn't want to talk. Or maybe she corrects his mistakes. Little details. He says 150. There was 150 people there. She says, no, there was 160. These things don't matter. Also, in general, just speaking in the wrong way can stop the conversation. If one person speaks too loud, or one person has the wrong tone of voice, or somebody speaks too fast. So you don't want to speak to people like that. Or some men claim, once she gets going, she never wants to stop. He doesn't want to open a conversation with her. It's like a can of worms. Just keeps coming out more and more. There's some women who work in kindergartens. And they're used to repeating themselves and talking and talking and talking to the kids. That's good for kids, but it's not good for a husband. So what should we do about that? We have to ask our spouse, is there, am I speaking correctly? Is there a problem with the way we're communicating? Logistically, maybe we're doing something wrong that's stopping the conversation. Or sometimes what happens is the other person has an angry face on and they don't realize it. Or there's tension that... There's tension coming from them, and, they, and the other person doesn't want to relate to them. But since the person themselves is not conscious of their attitude or their anger, so they think if the other person doesn't want to speak to them, but they don't see themselves. Or sometimes somebody speaks with too much emotion. They speak extreme, for example. They always say, yeah, that kid, that kid's hopeless. I've had it, I can't take it anymore. Some people speak that way, exaggerated in order to get the point across. But the person listening may not understand that. They think this person's crazy. Not only that, sometimes the husband comes home and he's relaxed. The wife is all nervous about what happened in the house. So the person who's not involved with the situation, they have a different perspective of what's going on. You don't want to talk to somebody who's so involved and so upset about something. And when that person says to them, please don't shout, don't be too upset. So the person talking feels there's nobody listening to me. Actually, we have a case of this in the Torah itself. Rachel said to Yaakov, Give me children. If not, I'm dead. So the Rambam explains that Yaakov got mad at her. She was frightening him with the threat of death. 
And sometimes the person says, wait a second, I like to express myself with emotions. What's the point of telling a story if it's not emotional? So this has to be made conscious. You have to understand the communication method of your spouse. How are they expressing themselves? And a real showstopper is when one of the couple brings up things that the other one said to them in a very intimate, private level. And all of a sudden there's a new thing happening or fight and they say, yeah, you this, you're like this, you're like that. So then surely the person's not going to want to speak to them ever again. So those are a lot of the problems. But what do we do? We have to create the right conditions for dialogue. For example, look into the other person's eyes when they're speaking. If one person's speaking and the other one's looking down at their iPhone or tying their shoes or sorting the laundry, who knows what? That's not a conversation. That's not a dialogue. One time there was a wife who was complaining that the husband never pays attention to her. It turns out that the husband was a cab driver. So he's used to speaking to people without looking at them. And don't sit on opposite sides of the table. Sit next to each other. Use the tools of public speaking. Just like a public speaker has certain methods that he uses in order to connect with his audience. To smile, to nod, to make it easy to talk, to joke around a little bit. Eye contact. Pay attention to the audience. Don't drag on. Get a feel for the other person. Pay attention to their unconscious reactions. Look at their body language. One time a wife complained that my husband thinks I'm an idiot. He always says, do you understand? Do you get it? So they checked out that she would listen without any expression on her face. He would talk and she would listen with no reaction. So he would say to her, do you understand? And she's complaining that he thinks I'm an idiot. But she's not showing any kind of reaction. No connection. Show the person that you agree, you disagree, you smile, nod. Try to make reactions clear and evident. Also try to find the right environment. This is a classic. The woman wants to speak to the husband right as he walks in the door. That may not be the best time, you know. Wait till he sits down. Wait till he has a drink. Wait till he's relaxed and then talk. Or the opposite. Someone wants to talk as a person's about to leave the house. Surely that's not going to make for a good conversation. The other person's in a rush. They have their mind already out the door. And you try to speak to them. It's not going to work. Or people try to speak on public transportation. The husband's embarrassed and the wife doesn't care. But that's not an environment to speak. You have to both be in a situation where you both feel comfortable speaking. Or another classic is late at night. One of the couple loves to stay up late. And the other, couple, the other one wants to go to sleep early. So the one who wants to stay up late, he starts talking all of a sudden. And he can talk for hours. And the wife is exhausted. She wants to go to sleep. So he feels bad. It's not the right time to talk. It's just not the right environment. So one way to get around all these problems is to make a fixed time to speak to each other. Where everybody feels comfortable and it's right for both sides. Okay, that's it for this week's Torah podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with your friends and leave comments. Thank you for listening. To get more enthusiasm for your Judaism, become a free member at globalyeshiva.com.